morning. Good morning, Helen. Well, for those of you who don't know me, as Pastor Craig said, my name is Helen Packard, and my husband Michael and I have been uh, with YWAM Turner Valley for a little more than five years now. And YWAM, or Youth with a Mission, is a international, interdenominational Christian missions organization. And at YWAM Turner Valley, our specific mission statement is to train, send, and support God's people to serve among the unreached. And over our last five years with YWAM Turner Valley, Michael and I have had just amazing opportunities to be part of accomplishing that mission statement. Uh, this year in particular, we had the opportunity to pioneer a program called Titus Project. And I know some of you have heard about that before. Uh, Titus Project equips Bible teachers to go out into the nations, to go to places where biblical studies and biblical training is either not accessible or it is non-existent. So we've mostly been in the biblical studies world throughout our five years with YWAM Turner Valley, but right now in this season, God has us on a bit of a different journey. We are leading our campus's Discipleship Training School, or DTS. And DTS is an introduction to YWAM and to missions, and it's a program that's really meant to jumpstart young adults' relationship with God through 12 weeks of lectures on various topics like Father Heart of God, Hearing God's Voice, Evangelism, and more. And then our students go on an eight-week outreach where they give out what they've received, and they put in action that the, the things that God has been doing in their heart, hearts as they've learned about Him and who they are in Him. So right now we're four weeks into the 12 weeks of lectures with DTS, and Michael and I have been tremendously blessed with the group of staff that we're working with and the students that have come from four different nations to participate. But another huge part of the blessing of this season for Michael and I is that it kind of feels like we're getting to redo our DTS in some ways. So we really are in this sweet season where we're just returning to the basics of our faith. Now, in the biblical studies world, we can easily get lost in scholarly pursuits concerning the Bible, which is an awesome thing. But we're in this really amazing season where we get to hear that basic truth from really wise teachers who are introducing our DTS students to the faith in a way that they can digest and apply in their own lives. Now, it's not really unlike what we're doing here at OAC in this sermon series uh, called What's the Big Idea? So we're unpacking our statement of faith as the Christian Missionary Alliance Church, but really we're returning to the big ideas our faith is grounded in. Now, sometimes that can feel like a step backwards to return to the basics. But in our day and age, when we are taking in information in a rate never seen before, and our faith is being challenged and even assaulted on every front, returning to the basics isn't a step backwards. It's a step forward to deeper understanding, to rooting ourselves in the truth, and to knowing what we believe and why we believe it. 
Now, the part of the Christian Missionary Alliance, or CMA's statement of faith that we're looking at this morning, is full of a lot of big theological words. We're going to grapple with lots of big concepts this morning. So before I get into defining and talking about what salvation, regeneration, justification, and sanctification meant in the life of Paul, whose story we're going to be examining this morning, I want to share a little bit about how salvation, regeneration, justification, and sanctification have worked out in my life as a child of God. So I became a Christian when I was 21 years old. Um, My story is a little more subtle than Paul's, who had a dramatic conversion experience, as we'll hear this morning. But though my story is more subtle, it is no less miraculous. My mother was a Christian, and I know she had a real faith in Jesus, and I, I grew up going to church. But I didn't grow up understanding that a relationship with Jesus was a part of what he wanted for me. I didn't grow up understanding salvation or regeneration or justification or sanctification. I didn't know those words, and I didn't know the concepts. When I was 16 years old, uh, my mother suddenly passed away, and that event, as you can imagine, really threw my family into turmoil. Uh, This left my sister and I with my stepfather, and that arrangement lasted for about seven months before we were uh, moved to two different places. And I went to live with my aunt and uncle for the last year of high school before I went away to university. And this season was pretty trauma-filled for me. I lost my mom, who I was extremely close to, but I also lost the home I'd grown up in and everything I was used to. But when I look back on this season, even though I wouldn't say I fully knew what it meant to trust in Jesus at this time, I see God's hand working in my life. God placed a Christian friend in my life at this time, and with her, I visited a different church where I saw people dynamically living their lives for God, and that was something new for me. Now, when I went away to university, I walked through uh, what you could call the classic stage of rebellion. I stopped caring about my grades, and I was more interested in social activities, we'll say. But even in this stage of rebellion, I can see God's fingerprints on my life. If you heard the details of my so-called rebellion, you probably think it was pretty minor leagues as far as rebellions go. And I'm confident that that was the work of the Lord in my life, protecting me from situations that could have made that time far worse. Again, in this season, God placed a Christian friend in my life, and after my second year of university, she and I were housemates for a few months before she was married. And I started going to church with her in this season. Again, a church where people were living for God, where they were in relationship with Him. But as I headed into my third year of university, there was a new struggle uh, waging inside of me, and that was the struggle of disordered eating. My friend had got married, and she moved out, and I lived on my own for that year. And what I remember from this year is a seemingly endless pattern of work, school, exercise, work, school, exercise. 
And by the end of that year, by the end of my third year of university, I was admitted into an outpatient program for anorexia because my life was actually in danger. But again, I see God's fingerprints on my life in this time. Several of my fellow patients were believers, and one of them had done a DTS with YWAM. And as I wrestled with an illness, I couldn't imagine having the grit or even the desire to beat. I asked Jesus into my life in an outpatient hospital room. Now, I didn't go blind for three days and get baptized immediately as Paul did, but if there was one big salvation moment for me in my life, this was it. What did God do in this moment? Well, this is where those big words fit in. Salvation, regeneration, justification, and sanctification. And it's where we'll stop with my story for now, and we'll consider what the CMA's statement of faith has to say about these big ideas. So the CMA's statement of faith says, Salvation has been provided only through Jesus Christ. Those who repent and believe in him are united with Christ, the Holy Spirit, and are thereby regenerated, born again, justified, sanctified, and granted the gift of eternal life as adopted children of God. So we're going to turn to Acts 9, where we see these big ideas played out and working out in the life of a real person who lived and breathed and who refers to himself as the worst of sinners. But he was forgiven and set free of sin in a dramatic fashion. So we're looking at the conversion of Paul or Saul, but Acts 9 isn't the first place where we see Paul. Just to give you a little bit of background information, in Acts 7 and 8, we read of Saul's role in the execution of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and we learn that he was ravaging the church, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So let's read Acts 9, verses 1 to 22. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, 
Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So, let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and thank you for this example we have of a real-life person who dramatically encountered you. I pray that we would learn from you as we examine this story, and that we would learn how we can apply the principles we find in this story to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's start with a basic question that we really have to answer before we can go any further this morning. And that question is, what is salvation? Salvation is defined as the acutely dynamic act of snatching others by force from serious peril. Salvation is the saving of a life from death or harm. And the Bible extends this definition to include deliverance from the penalty and power of sin, which as Pastor Craig shared last week, leads to death. Now, if anyone knew that salvation was provided only through Jesus Christ, it was Paul. We read in Acts about Paul's conversion, but parts of his testimony are also sprinkled throughout his letters. In Philippians 3, Paul describes his history before coming to faith in Jesus. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul tells the Philippians that he's ticked all the boxes when it comes to what should earn him righteousness if it was possible to earn it. But on the way to Damascus, as he is breathing threats and murder and ready to arrest Christians, he is acutely and dynamically snatched from serious peril, from death. He goes from being a zealous persecutor of the church to being its most famous missionary. So why couldn't Paul's works save him? 
He was born to the right family and in the right place. He followed the right customs and laws. He had the right teacher, the right career. He rubbed shoulders with the right people. But through his encounter with Jesus, Paul came to know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? We were born with a sin nature, passed on to us from the disobedience of Adam and Eve in the garden, which separated us from God. Now that makes us not just weak, not just sinners, but enemies of God. And in God's great mercy, he dwelled amongst us, his enemies, fully man and fully God. While we were still enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross. His death and resurrection snatched us from death and assures us that through faith, we will be resurrected with him. There is nothing we can do to earn salvation. There's nothing Paul could do, there's nothing you can do, there's nothing I could do. Salvation is provided only through Jesus Christ. Now, this is an unpopular message. We live in a world where people want to believe that all paths lead to the same destination, where we throw around phrases such as, truth is relative, and Jesus is viewed as a wise teacher who lived a couple of thousand years ago, but believing in what he's done for us, that it's necessary for salvation, we can take it or leave it. But that is absolutely not the message of the Bible. Jesus is absolutely and completely the only way to salvation. So I just want to say that if you have yet to say yes to Jesus, know that it is not too late. You are not too broken. And if you have said yes to him, know that you can stop trying to earn your salvation, to earn your rescue, because it has been entirely accomplished for you with or without your effort. So salvation has been provided only through Jesus Christ. Those who repent and believe in him are united with Christ through the Holy Spirit and are thereby regenerated or born again. When we think about salvation, repentance and belief, they go hand in hand. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' first recorded words are, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And repentance is defined as a changing of the mind or a turning from sin to God. Now you might have noticed that Acts 9 doesn't directly say Paul repented and believed in the gospel. But we know he did because Paul makes an abrupt change in his mind and turns to Jesus when he is encountered with Christ. Paul goes to Damascus to persecute Christians, but instead, after his encounter with Jesus, he proclaims Jesus in the synagogues. So we can be certain that Paul repented and believed. 
When Ananias prays for Paul to regain his sight and to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the first thing Paul does is to rise and be baptized. Now remember, he hadn't eaten anything or had anything to drink for three days. But his first priority is baptism. So why was baptism so important to Paul? Well, baptism is an act of obedience. It's something Jesus told us to do. But it is also a powerful picture of the salvation experience that occurs when a person turns to Christ, when he or she has repented and believed that salvation comes through Jesus alone. In Titus 3.5, Paul writes that God has saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is baptized as an expression of the fact that he has been born again. In Romans 6, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So regeneration means that our old self has died, and a new creation has emerged, a new creation that is united with Christ. When Paul went down into those baptismal waters, because he had repented and believed in what Jesus did on the cross and was regenerated, he identified himself with Jesus' death. And when he emerged from the waters, he rose again as a new creation. He rose again bound to Christ, with Christ's righteousness and sinlessness attributed to him, with the Father's pleasure in Jesus directed at him, a persecutor of the church, because he, Paul, had been made one with him. Now, how can this be? How is it right or fair that Paul, who calls himself unworthy to be called an apostle, could be looked upon with the pleasure of the Father. The same pleasure we read of when we read of Jesus' baptism, when the Father says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's not fair. What it is, is justification. Uh, Dr. Ron Smith defines justification as a legal term taken from the Greek judicial system. A person is taken to court and tried and publicly declared by the judge to be righteous, not guilty, and an upstanding member of the community. The classic example that we often think of when we think of justification is being taken to court for a speeding ticket. Now, you are 100% guilty of speeding, but when you're taken to court, someone steps in for you. They not only pay your fine, 
take your demerits, receive your punishment for you, they wipe your driving record clean. As if you had never sped, never run a red light, never parked illegally, not this time or ever. Now, of course, this illustration falls entirely short when we think of the enormity of what Christ has done. We go to court with our uncountable sins, and Christ's righteousness is declared as ours because we have believed in him. We are declared not guilty. We're justified because God sees Jesus, his perfection and sinlessness, when he looks at those who have been saved. Now, in Paul's life, this meant that all of the persecuting he had done before Jesus knocked him off his donkey on the way to Damascus was no longer counted against him. None of this is held against him because he believed in Jesus, and Jesus' perfection and sinlessness is attributed to him. So righteousness is counted to believers because of their faith in what Jesus has done. This means no matter our sin, past, present, future, and no matter our good works, past, present, future, our account always shows the balance of Christ's righteousness. If we have believed in Christ, we cannot do anything to take away from Christ's righteousness attributed to us. And we can't add anything to it by our good works. Now the logical question that comes after knowing we are justified is, well, why does sin matter? If no sin can take away my righteousness, why shouldn't I go on sinning? But we need to remember that our old self was crucified with Christ, making us dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When a person is saved, they become a new creation. It's not in the nature of the new creation to produce fruit of the old creation. Now, a popular illustration for this is to think of the old and the new as different species entirely. So if before Paul came to Christ, he was a banana tree producing bananas, uh, when he encountered Jesus on the way to Damascus, when he believed and was saved, he became a peach tree. Now, does a peach tree produce bananas? No, a peach tree produces peaches. So when we have been crucified with Christ and we emerge a new creation, united with Christ, it is no longer in our nature to produce bananas or sin. Because I've been saved, I'm not a banana tree trying my darndest to be a good person and pop out peaches. I am a peach tree that naturally produces peaches. I am a peach tree that naturally produces peaches. I am a believer who naturally produces fruit of the Spirit. Now, does a banana sprout out every now and then? Well, horticulturally speaking, this is kind of where the analogy ends. But yes, sin 
occasionally pops out in the life of a believer, but that is not natural to who we now are in Christ. God wants us to live holy lives. His heart is for our sanctification, our becoming holy. Now, our stance before him does not depend on it. We've already established that we are righteous before him because he sees Jesus when he looks at the believer. But as new creations, we are made to be holy. When we sin, when we make a mistake, God wants us to turn to him, to repent, and he loves to forgive us as we recognize our fallen short and strive towards further holiness, to greater sanctification. Doesn't matter how many times we fall down, God loves to pick us up as we repent and hold out our arms to him because we are his children. In Acts 9, God took great delight in picking up Paul from the mess and chaos of his sin, forgiving him and releasing him into the plans he had for him. And God took great delight in forgiving Paul for every sin he committed for the rest of his life as Paul sought to live his life holy before God. God never tires of forgiving us. He is with us and for us in the desire to live holy lives. He empowers us. And because our faith has been placed in Jesus, the Father's opinion of Paul, of us, never changes because the Father's opinion of Jesus never changes. Now you might be thinking that it's easy to believe that Paul received salvation, regeneration, justification, sanctification. You might be thinking, well, he's a character in the Bible. Of course God forgave him. But as I shared in my testimony, my salvation moment, I've experienced these things as well. It's not just for people in the Bible. Now, I didn't instantaneously recover from anorexia, but when I placed my trust in Christ, I died to my old life and became a new creation, united with Christ. Because I repented and believed in what Christ had done for me, I was born again through the Holy Spirit. And when God looked at me, he didn't see sin and brokenness and illness he saw Jesus. His perfection and sinlessness was attributed to me in the scandal of justification. In his goodness and mercy, God was interested and continues to be interested in making me holy, in sanctifying me. He is faithful to draw my attention to sin and bring me to a place of repentance. God delights in forgiving me his child. His opinion of me never changes because when he looks at me, he sees his son, Jesus. And his opinion of Jesus never changes. And on top of it all, God has enabled me to forgive others as well. Because when we understand the depth of how we've been forgiven, 
extending forgiveness becomes a natural part of the Christian walk. My testimony is, of course, different from everyone else's in this room, but each and every one of us who has been saved has experienced all the same big ideas we've spoken of in my testimony, in Paul's testimony. If you've been saved, you have been united with Christ through the Holy Spirit. You have been regenerated, justified, sanctified, and granted the gift of eternal life as an adopted child of God. We talked about how salvation through Christ alone is an unpopular message today, but the big obstacle to the message of regeneration, justification, sanctification, and adoption as a child of God, the big obstacle is self-condemnation. It seems unbelievable that God could want to do these things for us, that he has done these things for us. And that, it isn't humility, it's a misunderstanding of the full gospel, and it's something I wrestle with as well. Self-condemnation tells us that we don't have God's acceptance, that Christ's righteousness is not in our account, that God is disappointed in us. And these are lies. And the way to combat a lie is to know the truth. How do you know the truth? Well, my first suggestion is to go to Scripture. I've referenced a lot of Scripture today, and I've listed many of those verse references in the sermon notes so that you can go back and read through this truth and understand your true identity as one who has been forgiven, as someone who has been set free from sin. I'd recommend reading and studying Romans, Galatians, Ephesians. These are all tremendously important books in knowing our standing in Christ. Secondly, something we can do to root ourselves in the truth of our forgiveness is to declare truth over ourselves. If you beat yourself up with self-condemnation, learn to speak the things God would say over yourself. Remember, God looks at you and sees Jesus. Would God look at his son and say, your sin is too much for me to forgive? I'm not joyful over you? I'm disappointed in you? Of course not. God looks at the Son and says, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, God doesn't commend us for our sin or want us to continue in it, but His love of us and our identity in Him never changes. So learn to say over, your, learn to say over yourself, I am God's daughter. He is pleased with me. I am God's Son. He is pleased with me. And as you wrestle with your sins, say to yourself, I am a new creation. Know that by being united with him in his death and resurrection, you have been regenerated. You have been made new as God's child. And this forgiveness and regeneration makes it possible for us to extend forgiveness to others. My final suggestion is to write out your testimony. Look back on the ways in which God brought you to himself and include the words salvation, repentance, 
united with Christ, regeneration, justification, sanctification, eternal life, adopted child of God. And as you learn to use these words in reference to your own story of salvation, your own story of being acutely and dynamically snatched from serious peril, you can, be, you can begin to understand that these words aren't just for people in the Bible like Paul. They are for you. They describe what God has done for you. So to close this morning, I want to declare truth over you. Simple, necessary truth that is basic to understanding who we are, but so incredibly important in this age when the gospel message is unpopular and where we are gripped by the disease of self-condemnation. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and I'm going to read it to you from the message paraphrase of Ephesians 1. How blessed is God, and what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master Jesus Christ and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved Son. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we are a free people, free of penalties and punishments chopped up by all our misdeeds. And not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. It's in Christ that you... Once you heard the truth and believed it, this message of your salvation, found yourselves home free, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. This signet from God is the first installment on what's coming, a reminder that we'll get everything God has planned for us, a praising and glorious life. So Lord, I pray that we would understand these words and that we would understand our identity of who we are in you.